Southman City Church has four mantras that have been with us from the beginning. And these mantras are a way of describing a little more specifically how we think about following Jesus together, how we think about the project that we're up to. They're meant to be points of accountability and encouragement. And the reason they're mantras is because a mantra is quite literally a portable prayer that you're meant to take with you and repeat back to yourself on a regular basis for the purpose of your own transformation. I mean, that's literally like the definition of a mantra. So that's why we have mantras. And uh, we've been reteaching them for the first time in like two and a half years, both to renew them for the life of our community together and to introduce them in case you're new here and maybe you're wondering what exactly you have gotten yourself into. <laughs> well, hopefully these will go some way toward explaining that and bringing you along for the ride if they resonate with you. Uh, this is the last week of teaching these, and so let me remind you briefly where we've been. And I thought I'd point out the images over there in case uh, you haven't noticed them or I haven't explained them. Uh, so on the top left there on the canvas, you'll see sushi, not fish stew. That's a mantra about intentional simplicity. A top right, you'll see the illustration for everyone an icon. I really love that image. Uh, what you'll see there is, is people who are embracing one another and then bowing their heads toward one another in honor. But if you look a little longer at it, you might also notice that as those like three people put their arms around one another and, and bow toward one another, honoring the image of God in each other, that, that symbol formed by their, their heads up there, those three circles, is also a Trinitarian symbol, uh, a symbol for the life of God as told through Christian theology. Uh, bottom left over there is the, the image for practices, not performances. And I was, I was talking with someone last week and they were curious about that image. And I realized I've not done a good job of remembering to explain that one because it's a little more inscrutable than the other images in, in terms of how it fits with practices, not performances. So if you look on the bottom left there, uh, you'll see that there's like hands. There's like a smaller hand and a bigger hand and a bigger hand. And the, the, the immediate hand has a gold circle in the palm. And in Christian iconography, that always represents the body of Jesus because it remembers Jesus's uh, crucifixion where nails were in his hands. So you, you see the hand of Jesus, but then there's these other hands kind of behind it. And the, the idea there is that practice is a word for something that you actually get your hands on. Like something you actually do, not just think, right? Practice is a word for something you actually get your hands on. And there we have the hand of Jesus, but then we have these other hands. And it's meant to suggest that like we could get our hands on the very same practices that Jesus had his hands on. And like with our bodies and our time and our energy, live the same patterns of life that Jesus lived in his life. So that's practices, not performances. And then on the far right there, on the bottom right, um, is the illustration for today's mantra, which I'm gonna set up and name in a moment. Uh, but the story behind the mantra goes back to an experience I had before South and City Church. Uh, I'm working at another church, and I'm on a team of people who's been tasked with something. We were tasked with uh, dreaming of what we called a discipleship system or a disciple-making system. Now, if, if that's a strange word for you or you're not sure what we meant by that, like when churches and Christians talk about discipleship, usually what we mean is something like this, that Jesus has actually invited us into a way of life where we grow and we heal and we mature, and things like love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and goodness and like self-control, these things actually grow up more and more in our lives, that we learn to live more and more for love, and that we grow toward God. Like that whole journey is what you might call discipleship, to like actually follow Jesus in that direction. And so when we said we wanted to figure out a system, we were basically asking how do people in our church like take part in that life, and how do we make sure we're being intentional about that? So I was part of the team that was working on this, and I was doing what I usually do when I'm working on a problem, which is I went and found every book I could on the subject. 
And so I had this stack of books that I was reading through, and I had some old classics from like a long time ago in the history of the church that talked about these ideas. And then I had books that were written recently that were meant to represent the cutting edge of thinking around discipleship or disciple making in the church. So I'm reading through all these books, and I don't know if you've ever had this situation before where you're working on a problem or you're reading sources or you're in a certain space and, like, something doesn't seem quite right, but you're not sure, like, what it is, and you can't even formulate the question yet. You ever had that kind of, like, guttural, like, like your intuition is ahead of your analytical brain, and it's first is your intuition telling you something's a little weird here, and then it takes your brain some time to put some language to it. Well, I was having that feeling and I was chewing on this question in a really focused way, which meant that like, I took the question with me everywhere. It was in the back of my mind like when I was at work and when I was at home, when I was on vacation, when I was out with friends. It was always traveling with me. And it, that, that question of like, what, what's missing or what's confused or what's not quite right in all these books that I'm reading and these ways that we're trying to think about discipleship, that question was with me when I went up to Michigan one day to visit my brother's farm. Now, we did not grow up as farmers in the Miller family. <laughs> And so my brother becoming a farmer was a bit of a surprise to some of us. And I was trying to catch up with this development in my brother's life. And so I went up to Southwest Michigan where he had about 100 acres, where he was farming. Uh, some of it was feed crop and some of it was for local farmers markets, things like melons and corn. And I went there to see his farm and to take it in and to try to get a glimpse of this life that he was living up there. So my brother takes me out into the field. I've never really been in a field on a farm before. <laughs> like this is all new to me. And you know when you're in a, a very new environment, you know you're like your sensory apparatus is tuned up a little bit? Like when you're in familiar environments, you tend to notice less. And when you're in unfamiliar environments, you tend to like take in everything at an elevated level. So I'm taking everything in. And my brother is showing me stuff. Like he shows me where he's growing corn. And he's got some rows of corn that he planted with one seed and some rows of corn that he planted with another seed. And these two different seeds for corn were designed to create corn that had two different strategies for pest resistance. And he shows me how one of those seeds, one of those crops of corn, it really worked. Like the pests weren't a problem. But with another uh, crop right next to it, there were a bunch of pest problems. And so on the one side, he pulls an ear of corn off the stalk and he pulls back the husk. And it's those beautiful, pearly ears, uh, kernels of corn, right? Like I, I wanted to like eat it right then. But then right next to it, he pulls an ear of corn off the stalk and he pulls the husk back. And it's just been completely decimated by pests. He shows me uh, places in the field that lay low and how when there's heavy rains, they get too saturated with water, and he actually has problems with field rot there. And he talks about how he had to make some educated guesses on the best time in the spring to plant certain crops, because you know, like, there's no infallible way of figuring that out. And sometimes you plant too early, and a late frost ruins your crop, or you plant too late, and you don't get as much yield as you would have gotten had it had longer to grow before harvest season. He talks about weather and decisions that he's making and things that he's learning. And while I'm out there, this light bulb slowly turns on. It wasn't like a switch flipped. It was more like a rheostat. Like this really dim glow started to happen inside. And I know some of you are thinking it's still dim in there, Jay. But to me, like it finally like got brighter and, and lit up. And so here's, here's the process happening in my mind when I'm out there in the field. I start thinking about how it feels different out here. And how for the last couple hundred years, most of us human beings have lived closer to the factory than the field. How since the industrial imagination, even those of us who don't work in factories, have lived in an era where many of the things that human beings are most excited about have been made in a factory. A lot of economic movement has happened thanks to the life in the factory. A lot of human well-being has been furthered thanks to the industrial revolution and the efficiency of those processes that really came about just a couple hundred years ago. So I'm thinking about how we, we often live closer to the factory than the field. 
uh, at least in the way that we think about things and see the world. And then I'm thinking about the fact that we always, as human beings, use things we can see to describe the things we can't see. I mean, this is how we use language and metaphor in all kinds of areas in life, right? Human beings use things that you can see to describe things you can't see. But the trick there is whether you know it or not, that means that the things you can see shape your understanding of the things you can't see. And so for 200 years, you and I, we've been, like, we've been living in the imagination of the factory, I think, whether we knew it or not. And living in the imagination of the factory, whether you know it or not, can be a little bit like the fish in the water where the older fish asks the younger fish, how's the water? And the fish says, what water? Right, because when you're swimming in it, you might not even know it's there. And we've been swimming in uh, an era in human history of industrial imagination. And I'm thinking about all of that, and then I'm thinking about how it is that Jesus talks about the things that we can't see. And how when Jesus talks about the life of the kingdom of God, about growing with God, healing with God, maturing with God, about that ultimate reality that is love, that is breaking into the world. He uses metaphors from the field to describe it. He uses things that they could see happening in ecology and natural places to describe the things that we can't always see, like the life of the kingdom of God. Let me show you a few examples. This is John 15. Jesus says, I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Or in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a bunch of different parables. These are Jesus using things we can't see to describe, or we can see to describe the life of the kingdom of God. And he says, for example, in parables, a farmer went out to sow his seed. A little while later in Matthew 13, we read this. Jesus told him another parable where he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. Or how about this, a little while later in Matthew 13, he told them another parable and he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Jesus is almost like obsessed with using ecological, agricultural metaphors for the life of the spirit, for the life of the kingdom of God. And I think if Jesus were with us today, 2,000 years later, even though now we live in the era of the industrial imagination, I still think he would use agricultural, ecological metaphors for the life that we are reaching for with God and with one another. And we, we mean this like for your individual life and the way that we think about our own growth toward God. And we think about it in our life together as a church. The factory is a wonderful, beautiful thing and it does so much good in the world. But I'm not sure it's an appropriate way to think about the life of spirit with God and with one another. And this brings us to the mantra that we want to get into today, which is fields, not factories. Fields, not factories. Now, there's this disclaimer that's important because I've discovered that um, it's easy to be a little misunderstood here. Nothing I'm about to say is meant to denigrate like factory work and factory life, right? It's a metaphor, roll with it. I promise this is not a statement about whether like God loves factory workers or whether anything good is happening in factories. Most of my favorite things come from factories. So like big fan of factories. This is about which imagination is the right imagination to help us think about our life with God and with one another. And around here, we, uh, we believe deeply and we are trying to lay hold of the idea that the field is a better image for our life with God and one another. Now, to press into this, let's just talk about a few obvious differences between a field imagination and a factory imagination, because I think this is where the rubber really meets the road. So, for example, look, uh, this first one here. Uh, in a factory, there's no seasons. In a field, there are. 
Now, the first time I preached this, somebody who works in a factory came up to me and they said, actually, we have lots of seasonality in our supply chain and consumer demand. And I was like, dude, ride the metaphor with me, right? <laughs> I understand that. But there's nothing intrinsically seasonal about a factory, right? Because in theory, the structure of a factory, you know, you build a floor and walls and the ceiling and you have your machines. And as long as you can maintain the supply chain and have the workers and maintain consumer demand for whatever it is that you're building, in theory, there's nothing intrinsically seasonal about factory imagination in, in factory life, right? I mean, in fact, you could argue that the best version of a factory is one where things are running so effectively and the demand is so high and the, the labor supply is showing up that you could literally run the factory 24-7, 365. And there are factories around the world that run 24-7, 365 with absolutely consistent output, or the goal at least is to have absolutely consistent output year round. You, you feel that? Do you feel that in your life? Do you ever feel like the modern era asks you to be a little bit like that factory? That you are just meant to have constant output, constant growth. You're just meant to be on all the time. And some of this is a, a, a consequence of the way technology is a part of our lives these days where you sleep with your phone next to your bed and you check your email every morning of the week. And even when you're on vacation, you're still on, on the work schedule and, and at your computer. I mean, we could go on and on about like, the modern era and the way that seasonality is almost non-existent in much of our lives in the modern era. But fields have seasons. And seasons aren't accidents in the field. They're not a problem to overcome in the field. They're part of life in the field. I mean, just think about how different it is to imagine your life or um, your, your life with God or our life together through the lens of seasons. Like think about springtime, for example, and the unique mode of springtime in the field. It's messy. It can be muddy. Hopefully those spring rains come, but maybe too much or maybe not enough. You got to deal with that. Springtime, you are simultaneously clearing out some of the dead crop from the last season that you didn't get to before the winter. So you're dealing with the old and at the very same time you're dreaming about the new. Maybe you're imagining a different way of planting or rotating your crops and you're putting seeds in the soil which are little acts of hope for what will happen in the future. I mean springtime is exciting and invigorating and full of visioning and future thinking and it's messy and it's disruptive but springtime can be a, like a beautiful season in life. And sometimes when you're in the springtime, if you don't know that it's springtime, you can be frustrated by all that disruption and newness. But what if it's good that you're in a season where it's time to clear out the old and make way for some of the new and to dream and work for it? But of course, it's not just always springtime in the field. Sometimes it's summer. And from what I can tell from friends who actually like, live their lives in the field, summer is mostly grinded out time. <laughs> it's a lot of hot, dusty days where you just show up and do the work from early in the morning till late at night. And a lot of those days don't provide any like immediate reward. You don't get to taste the fruit of that work the day that you do that work, do you? You just show up day after day and do the work knowing this is the season that you're in, right? Well, then there's fall time, which is harvest. Um, I mean, harvest is a beautiful moment where you not only avail yourself of all the work that you've done that now provides this crop. But you realize, of course, that all the work that you did was insufficient to account for the miracle of the food that comes back to you now, right? I mean, the, the idea that we put a seed in the ground and we water it, and a few months later we eat fruit and vegetables, like, I mean, that's a miracle beyond us, right? That, that is participating in something beyond us, and yet there it is. And so harvest time comes and, and you work hard in the field, but then you experience the joy, hopefully, 
of that crop, although there are some harvest seasons that yield less than others, and you have to deal with that disappointment as well. Uh, I wonder when the last time was you let yourself just taste and celebrate the fruit of earlier work, where you, like, you actually just let yourself rest in the fruit of earlier work and the graces that have taken that work and turned it into something that could sustain you. I mean, I, I think a lot of us are so anxious that we're afraid to let ourselves ever do that. It feels irresponsible or gluttonous or lazy or dangerous to ever rest, to ever sit back and just taste the good things that you have been a part of creating, but that have somehow come to you from something beyond you. But that's life in the field. Everybody knows it in the field, don't they? And then there's winter. And by the way, I keep learning this mantra preaches really well in the Midwest, better than other places. <laughs> then there's winter. And around here, we know what winter is, right? At least in the landscape, we know what winter is. It's time for quiet. There's that hush that falls over the landscape in the winter when the days are short and the nights are long and the darkness expands. And that snow cover keeps everything tucked in. And of course, in some ways, it seems like nothing is happening in the landscape during the winter. But that's not really true. A lot of renewal is happening in the landscape. I mean, even that snow that falls, especially in mountainous regions, the whole, whole function of that snow that falls and just sits there for months is that when the next springtime comes, those reserves of water will melt and they will nourish the land below it, right? I mean, a lot of important things are happening during the winter, but it doesn't look that way. And I think especially in the modern mindset, maybe in the American mindset, maybe even in the American religious mindset, we are terrified of winter because we just think our job is output, 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 growth, growth, growth. And to trust that there are processes at work in the quiet and in the dark and in the rest, that's really hard for us to do. Um, and yet, uh, most of human history has understood this. And in most of human history, it would be natural to, to, to use the idea of seasonality, perhaps, to think about our life with God and with one another. But again, you and I, uh, we have been imbibing the industrial imagination for our whole lives, and we need to reclaim this other idea. And so I wonder for you, like, if you might even want to give yourself permission to think about the season that you're in. And it can be really powerful and holy and healing to just name it. And it's okay if you're in a winter, or if it's okay, it, it's okay if it's a messy springtime. Uh, it's okay if you are just in grinded out phase in that long, hot summer. Or it's okay if you realize this is a time to taste the fruit and celebrate and be thankful for some of the good things that have come. Uh, factories don't necessarily have seasons, but fields do. Or how about this next difference? In a factory, I would argue the question is like, what can you make happen? And frankly, if I like owned a factory and I was interviewing somebody to be the manager of this factory on my behalf, I think the thing I most wanna know about them is what can you make happen? Are you capable of exerting your will on this thing? and pushing it in the right direction. That's, a, I think, a rational expectation because of many dynamics in a factory, and one of which we're gonna to get to right after this. But in the factory, like, what can you do with what happens? But in the field, being out there with my brother and just hearing about all the things that he, like, had to get surprised by and deal with, I realized the operative question in the field is what do you do with what happens? Which is not so much a question of exerting yourself as it is adapting yourself, right? Now, this is interesting to me because when I listen to a lot of like, popular American preaching, I think the, 
The thing implied in so much of it is that faith is really about what you can make happen. Now, ironically, a lot of that preaching will say it's all about faith and what God can do, but, but it's like, it always seems to be the case that the more faith you have, the more God does, which starts to sound like you're the one making it happen, doesn't it? Or that you're gonna pray in a certain way and that that prayer is gonna change things and therefore prayer changes things, which means that like, the big idea is what can you make happen? And, and the irony about that is if you actually read the Bible cover to cover, you get very little of that. So much of the Bible is people grappling with what do we do with what has happened, both in a negative way and a positive way. I mean, the Psalms are saturated with lament. The primary mode of prayer in the Psalms is not faith that moves mountains, but faith that cries out in questions when things go wrong because we have to figure out what we do with these things that have happened on the negative side. Or the New Testament, you could argue that the bulk of the New Testament is a grappling with what do we do with what has happened in Christ? This event has caught us off guard, and now we are trying to just figure out what do we do with this unexpected event that we have encountered in Christ. Uh, if I were hiring a factory manager, I wanna know what you can make happen, but if I'm looking for somebody to do things in the field, I really wanna know about your capacity to do something with the things that happen that are often beyond you. It kind of takes us to the next uh, distinction I wanna make, um, that a factory is often about efficiency, and I think a field is about patience. You could argue that like, the more efficient a factory is, the better, right? Like, that just makes sense. You wanna eliminate waste, you wanna refine all the processes, you wanna um, get as much output as you can from every bit of input. That makes sense, right? And you want it to happen as fast as possible. If you can take a manufacturing process that takes two weeks and find a way to make it take one, you win, right? <laughs> Like, that's going to make you competitive in all sorts of ways. But uh, in the field, I, I just don't think it works that way. I've yet to meet a farmer who has figured out how to take uh, a crop and get it to go from seed to harvest in half the amount of time as the neighbor farmer. <laughs> like, things just don't work that way in the field. In the field, we are at the mercy of timelines beyond us, aren't we? I remember I was in college, and I was having a, a really hard time. I was... Um, and a real uh, low point in mental health. I was clinically depressed. Uh, and I was facing some childhood trauma that I was trying to work through. And the healing process was so frustrating. <laughs> like, so frustrating. And I felt, like, so strongly that, like, I wanted to make it more efficient, you know? I had this feeling inside, like, would somebody just tell me the six things I need to do to heal? And I will do them as quickly as possible. I will just find a way to barrel through them so I can get to the end of this really difficult process. And it was with that anxious, urgent energy that somebody approached me noticing it. And, and this is a mentor of mine who just like sat me down and very wisely said, hey, Jay, this, this healing that you want, this process that you're in, this might take a while. These are timelines that are beyond your control. You have your part to play. You need to opt into the process. You need to keep saying yes and showing up, but ultimately the timelines are beyond you. I think this is really hard for like the, like the Western mindset, the modern mindset. We just, we want so badly to be efficient. But the problem is like this life with God, this life in the kingdom, I mean, it's us participating in processes that are beyond us and bigger than us that we're not in charge of, right? And so we don't really get to decide how efficient it's going to be. If we're not patient with it, I find we often um, just opt out of it because it's not happening on our schedule. And who has time for that, right? But what a tragic thing. Or how about this? Another difference between fields and factories. 
In a factory, and you might notice these kind of overlap, these different distinctions, but in a factory, like I think control is really great. I mean, we talk about quality control in a factory, and a factory that's really good at quality control is better than a factory that's not good at quality control, right? And like really, like the point of a factory is to create utterly consistent widgets, right? That's the goal of a factory. A factory owner, manager, somebody who designs a factory, they look at raw materials and they ask, what do I want these raw materials to be? And in the modern area, we are pretty good at making kind of anything out of raw materials. It's really quite staggering what we figured out how to create in the modern era. And so in a factory, you control everything. You build the roof, the walls, you control the environment, you control the raw materials in, you control the labor that people put into the, all that stuff. And if you control all that really well, at the end, whatever you wanted those raw materials to be, they will be, and they come out as perfect little widgets. But do you know, this might be news to you, you are not a widget. Did you know that? You're not a widget. We are not a widget. This community, this family that we are a part of, this doesn't get to be whatever we want it to be. It has a kind of intrinsic nature of its own. And the best kind of work that we can do is to ask, like, what does this want to be? And then try to cultivate that. I mean, a couple of examples from the field that come to mind. Imagine that you spent your whole life dreaming about making wine. And so you want to plant a vineyard and make great wine. But if you live in a place where the land and the climate aren't fit for the grapes that make great wine, it doesn't matter how badly you want to make great wine. You're not going to make great wine, right? How much better to look at the land that you have, the nature of the soil and the climate and everything else about where you are and ask, what would flourish here most? That's a smart farmer, right? Or you think about a farmer who puts a carrot seed in the ground and then tries to will it to become a cucumber. <laughs> That's going to be a very frustrated farmer, right? How much better to just realize, no, that is meant to create carrots, and so I will just try to cultivate the best kind of carrots I can. Now, you translate that over into, like, our lives, and you think about it. My, I have a lot of friends who have young kids these days, and uh, I get to hear them talk about the parenting journey. And one of the favorite things I hear them talk about lately is how they are, they are getting to know these little people, and they are beginning to discover, like, who and what they are going to be, Right? And parents, I think you know this, like, you don't actually have a lot of input on what they're going to be, right? Now, I think character is really, you ought, to, you ought to show them character. You ought to train them up in values. You ought to give them a path to run, and I think that's really important. But you know you can't change their personality, right? <laughs> like, there's a givenness to who they are. And, and the job of, of recognizing that givenness to who they are is then to just cultivate the, the best, fullest, most beautiful, most vibrant, most vital version of that of that thing that this child is here to be, right? How about this one? Same goes for your spouse. Oh, no. <laughs> like, you get that, right? They're not actually here to be who you want them to be, right? They are here to be who they are made to be, and hopefully you get, you know, the most mature, loving, growing, healed version of that, but, like, they're not here primarily to report to what you want them to be. But what if marriage is mostly about collaborative cultivation? Whatever you have been given to be, I want you to be the best version of it, and I want to help you get there. Scripture talks about things like calling and gifting, spiritual gifts, these things that are given. The, the, the best we can do, the best kind of life we can live is to hear those things, to ask, what does this life want to be? What does this community want to be? What does this relationship want to be? And then how do I go there with it? I'll never forget on this one, uh, our first experimental gathering ever as a church we were over there at the brick, and our friend Aaron Nequist came out, and this is in 2016. Uh, we 
we did a kind of a liturgy and we prayed and we did some meditation on scripture and there was a lot of silence. We had like 10 minutes of silent meditation in that gathering. So you think things are weird these days. Uh, but it was beautiful. And I had a friend attend that gathering whose discernment I really trust. And so after the gathering, I met up for him, with him for a meal a few days later. And I just asked him, what, what did you notice? What did you sense? What were you paying attention to in that gathering? And the words he said have stuck with me to this day. And they really feed into this whole idea. He said, something wants to happen here. He didn't say, Jay, I love what you want to happen here. He said something wants to happen here. That there's like a life being um, called out and given for this community. And when he said that, it struck me that that's right. My job, our job is really to ask more than what do we want this to be, to ask it, what does this want to be? What is it that can flourish here? What kind of life would be the best kind of life for this community? What has God gifted to this community? What is God stirring up in this community and how do we celebrate that and cultivate it rather than trying to control our way towards some other destination that we've just come up with on our own? I think this is a powerful and profound way to relate to your own life too. I think a lot of us um, have been sold a bill of goods about the best kind of life through marketing, through, through images on our feeds. We've, just, we've been given all these pictures of what looks like perhaps that's the best kind of life, and then we try to will our lives into that vision of life and then wonder why we are exhausted and frustrated and depressed and angry and resentful because we can't get to that picture of life. But what if you were never meant to be in that picture of life? And what if you could like, like realize that you've been duped and instead realize like your life is uniquely given. You are uniquely you. You are not a widget. And you are not here to live up to some template. But you are you. And the best, most beautiful life you have to give is the one that might begin with asking, like, like, like what, what wants to come out of your life? What beauty, what goodness, what uniqueness wants to come out of your life? And how do you, like, get behind that and collaborate in it coming out? Um, I stood there in the field with my, my brother and I, I thought about all those books I was reading. And this is not to disparage these authors or the good work that they were trying to do, but it struck me these books, they just, they were full of the factory mindset. Um, you know, I'll give you two steps, three steps, five steps, seven steps, but whatever we're gonna do, it's like I could take all the raw materials of your lives and as your pastor, I just take all you and I, like, I take you, put them through the factory and on the other end, you all come out like Christian widgets. And just standing there in the field, I just thought that is not the, that's not the work at all. Right? The work is uh, to dance with the seasons of growth and quiet and rest. The work is to be patient with the promise that like, God actually intends to grow us up and grow us whole. The, the work is to get curious about like, what your own life wants to be, what your partner's life wants to be, what this community wants to be. Uh, the work is... Um, full of the promise that you feel when you, you do your part and then you realize that a mystery beyond you has taken things like seeds and dirt and made life. I mean, what a mystery, right? What a strange, beautiful thing. And standing out there in the field with my brother, the other feeling I had was that the factory imagination doesn't have a lot of room for wonder. Because when you're in control of everything and all the variables are yours and you're just pushing it toward whatever destination you have in mind, there's not a lot of open-heartedness toward a mystery beyond you. 
But in the field, what I could tell is just, you know, you, you do your part and you're, you try to be as smart as you can be and learn as much as you can about how to cultivate life in the field. And then at the end, you get to the harvest and you sit back and you realize a mystery has entered the picture that is bigger than me. And there's all this life and sustenance and beauty coming back to me that I get to be a part of. Now, that's how I usually preach fields, not factories. That's kind of the standard pitch. And this year, as we renew the mantras, we've also been asking, like, what new could we say about them? Or what new do they have to say to us? Is there any fresh point of accountability or encouragement that they have for us in this season? And we could probably spend a long time talking about that. And I hope you'll think about that too and, like, feed that back to us. But one reflection I've had in this season about fields and factories and where we've been uh, in the last 18 months comes from a film. Let me put the logo up here on the screen. Anybody seen The Biggest Little Farm? Oh, please watch it. Like, you're welcome. This is going to, like, tee you up for the week. Tonight, get some carry-out food, sit in front of the TV, find Hulu or use your friend's login or whatever, but watch The Biggest Little Farm. It's a beautiful documentary. The setup is this. There's a couple living in Los Angeles. Uh, he is a documentary filmmaker, and she is a professional chef and a food blogger, and she's very passionate about the connection between, like, the food that we eat and where it comes from and the idea that there might be methods of producing those raw ingredients for our food that would be healthier and, and better for us. So they have these passions, but they're living in a small apartment in L.A., and then one day he goes out to film something for his work, and th what he's filming is a, a, a woman who's actually been hoarding lost dogs. So uh, the problem is that she has like 20, 30 dogs in her home in L.A., and that's not allowed. And so, uh, so he goes there to film it, and while he's there filming these, these poor dogs who are about to be taken away from this woman, he falls in love with one of them, and they rescue this dog. Well, they bring the dog home to their apartment, and the dog's great, except for the fact that when he and she are gone from the apartment, the dog barks constantly, incessantly, and the neighbors are getting quite fed up with it. So they try a bunch of things to try to get the dog to stop barking. Nothing works, and eventually their landlord lets them know that the dog is being evicted. <laughs> and they feel a real bond with this dog, and they've rescued this dog, so they're not about to abandon this dog. And so they use this moment as the thing to push them to pursue a dream that they've had for a very long time, which is to leave the apartment in LA and find their own bit of land to do some farming. So they go about an hour north of LA and they don't just do any kind of farming. Their dream, their vision is to recover the way that ecosystems are really meant to work. Because of course the irony of preaching fields, not factories in the modern era is a lot of farming these days is actually quite industrialized. And so like monoculture crops and that kind of stuff, I mean, that's sort of an industrial method of farming. So that's the irony in the metaphor. But they want to recover a real biodynamic, integrated, ecologically wise way of farming. And so they find about 200 acres an hour north of LA that is dead as dead can be. The soil is hard as a rock. It's, it's gray. You can't even dig a shovel into it. And this is a large tract of land that had been industrially farmed for a very long time, which is why the land is dead. And the documentary, it, it follows them for eight years as they slowly transform this land from dead land into verdant, beautiful, like living, breathing ecosystem. And this is what it looks like uh, toward the end of the film. And it's not just that it's green, but when you watch the film, what you discover is that like their mentor, a lot of what he's teaching them is, first of all, you need really good soil. Like the soil could be dead or alive, but living soil creates more life and dead soil is not very good at creating more life. And so they have to learn how to make soil come alive again with microorganisms and like worms and all that kind of stuff, right? And then as they, the other, the other big idea from this mentor of theirs is that you need a lot of diversity of species for a biodynamic environment. For a real ecosystem, you need all these different species interacting with one another in just the right ways. 
It's a, it's a form of diversity where everything brings its part but lives in harmony and balance with all the other species that are in that ecosystem too. And it takes them a while to get there because it's kind of two steps forward, one step back. They'll get one species of life going really strongly on their field, but then that will attract like an invasive amount of another species that feeds on that first species that's doing really well. So then they got to figure out what they're going to do about that. And that's like one of those moments where maybe conventional or factory farming would bring a pesticide in, but they, they slowly find all of these ways to let everything live in harmony with everything else. And it's just a, it's a beautiful, inspiring film, and it's about themes that are way bigger than a 200-acre plot of land in, in California outside of LA. But the reason I bring up The Biggest Little Farm today is one moment that happens in the film. Uh, I just rewatched it last night to sort of get in touch with this again. So uh, most of the film takes place in a drought season in LA. And if you know anything about California, you know there's been a lot of drought. But then these monsoon rains come. Now you might think, great, we needed rain. Finally the rain came. But if you've been through a drought season and then monsoon rains came, the land may not be able to hold the water, especially if the land is dead. And so in the documentary, you see these monsoon rains fall down and all of the land around this farm suffers mudslides and washouts. And I mean, not only are mudslides and washouts really bad, they cause damage, they can injure and kill people, like they're really bad. But on top of that, there's the tragedy of all this rain finally coming and being wasted. It just it dragged all the topsoil on that dead land and dragged it like, out to sea, the water and the topsoil. And the water didn't stay with the land and they lost some of what they needed on the top, except for on this plot of land. Because these 200 acres, they'd spent years like planting not just like the crops that they want to eat from, but cover crops all around those crops. They had created living soil. And it turns out that when you have really healthy land, when you have a, an ecosystem where all of these species are flourishing together, it turns out that a monsoon is not a tragedy, it's actually a gift. And during that storm, this property sequestered something like 100 million gallons of water drawn down into the soil, held in an aquifer. Like it, it was able to take all of that monsoon rain and, and use it and store it. And the reason that stands out to me is, I, gosh, I feel like we've been through a monsoon the last 18 months, you know? Just an all-out uh, storm. And watching the film reminded me that when an ecosystem is really vibrant, and when we're living in beautiful and generous relationship with one another, when we know that we belong to each other, when all these different kinds of diversity are sort of working together, it turns out a monsoon doesn't have to be fatal. That when the, when the ecosystem is healthy, when the ground is fertile, um, we can hold a lot of water. And I just, been asking myself over the last 18 months, like, what have we learned about the quality of the ecosystem that we are cultivating here? And like the health that might be here and, and the unhealth that might be here. And I think the honest answer is it's a mixed bag. I think there's ways in the last 18 months that we've actually seen that what has been cultivated in this family since the beginning of South and City Church is, is good and the soil is becoming alive and species like are living together in harmony, right? That like different people from different places and experiences and with different strengths and gifts and backgrounds that we are growing in the way that we belong to one another. And the more that that happens, the more a monsoon is not a threat. I know there are some who have found that the relationships that most sustained you in this very difficult season are the ones that have come from this community. That is so beautiful. Like what a way to love one another as Christ has loved us. I know others have felt like you slipped through the cracks or like 
like the monsoon came and you got washed away. I know that's real and there's some pain there. Like, actually, I get that. I, we still have a lot of cultivating to do, right? Like, we never get to finish this project. We still have um, an ecosystem in our midst that we are working on together and, and growing up together. Uh, in your personal life, too, I wonder how you feel about what has happened to the monsoon in the last 18 months and whether it's been more mudslides and washouts or whether you realize that the ground is holding the water. Now, if you feel like in your life the last 18 months have been mostly mudslides and washouts, don't you dare hang your head right now, okay? There's not an ounce of shame in that reflection. There shouldn't be, although a lot of us are carrying a lot of shame. Um, but remember what we say in practice is not performance, is failure is not fatal, and you can get curious about that. And so if you feel like it's been a lot of washouts and mudslides, maybe it's just a chance to get curious about the nature of the soil and the ecosystem that you're a part of and where better things could grow. But again, the, the hope for me here is that, like, Jesus uses those metaphors over and over again because I think Jesus knows that God intends to grow beautiful things. And not just individual things, but like a beautiful field where all of these different lives and experiences are living in loving and generous relationship with one another. And the things that we need from one another are freely given to one another. Like, I think that's actually the vision. And Jesus seems to think it's actually possible. Like, he seems to think that's actually what God is up to in the world. And so, like, I hope you hear the good news in this. The good news that you are not a widget. The good news that something better than a widget is being grown up in your life. The good news that you are more than what you produce every day. The good news that every season has its place. The, the good news that you're not in control, <laughs> but that you do get to cultivate and work with God and with the people around you to discern what it is that wants to grow, what beautiful species of life it is that wants to grow in you, and then to give your best energy to it. And the good news that there are seasons of harvest and rest, seasons for things to lie fallow, and to simply just like enjoy the nourishment and the flavor of the good things that have grown in our midst. Uh, if you're able, we stand to your feet. I keep forgetting to say this, but if, if you want to take the mantras with you, these images are printed on little mantra cards that are over there on the bookshelf. Those are just free to take if you want to carry them in your wallet or put them up in, at your office or hang them on your wall. There's at least three families I know in this church. I've walked into their homes and discovered that they framed those, like they had them like mounted. It's really beautiful. Um, so anyway, if you want to take them with you, we'd love for you to take those cards with you as a way of making these actual prayers that shape us every day. That being said... May you know that God wants to grow good things in you and through you. And that when they grow, they won't come by way of the factory, but by way of the field. May you trust every season that it has its purpose, even the dark ones and the quiet ones. Uh, may you trust that the good things that grow are meant not just for you, but for us, for one another. May we continue to look for better and better soil and more and more life in our midst. And as the monsoons come, may we discover that the land is capable of holding the water and that we can grow even through those. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you at the tailgate next week.